I've always said that if I was allowed back to my old school, I would want to give a speech that probably people don't want you to give to, to young people or sometimes anyone. But the crux of that speech would end in, find out what is meaningful, well, find out, get in touch with your values, understand what they are and take massive risks. I know it's not something that a lot of people will say, go and take massive risks as long as they're aligned with your values. Be brave, be audacious. And I'll often say to people, what would you do if you were 10% braver? Yo, welcome to the Always Better Than Yesterday podcast with me, Ryan Hartley. And these are the interview sessions where I interview successful and inspiring people about their heart and their mind. These interviews are brought to you by our good friends at Web Creation for stunning websites at sensible prices. Head to webcreationgroup.com. Today on episode 78, I am joined by Gareth Davies, a former police sergeant and co-founder of consultancy The Bravest Path. Through The Bravest Path with his wife, they're on a mission to help people develop courage in every area of their lives. And by doing so, they hope they'll inspire people to be vulnerable, take smart risks and show up as their authentic selves every day, experiencing greater joy and connection. Before we jump in, please make sure that you like or subscribe to this podcast. Please do share it with that one person in your network that you feel that would really benefit from hearing what Gareth has to say during this interview. And without further ado, let's dive in. Hope you enjoy. Much love. Yo, and welcome to the Always Better Than Yesterday interview sessions with me, Ryan Hartley. And today I'm joined by Gareth Davies. Gareth, welcome, my friend. Hi, thanks very much for having me, Ryan. Amazing. So please give yourself a little introduction. Tell us a bit about yourself and a, and a bit about your story. Uh, so I run, or I co-founded a, a consultancy called The Bravest Path. Uh, we are a courage building consultancy. So we work with our um, with organisations and, and clients to help their people take more smart risks. Um, I uh, my background, um, I used to be in the Met Police. Uh, I worked in various specialist units, uh, and I was a sergeant with them, and then transferred to Surrey Police for a while uh, before making the move out of the job and starting my own consultancy in partnership with my wife. That's amazing. That's amazing. You and I both share that that policing career. And what sort of things did you have to go through? What what experiences have shaped who you've become today? So I, it's an interesting question, and I know we'll we'll get onto kind of the, the bits and pieces I'm up to around podcasting and, and things later. But mm. it's a question that I've been discussing with a few people I've been interviewing recently around what you bring into the job. And so I think what initially shaped me, and I think it shapes everyone, is, is all those messages that you pick up from a very, very early age. So um, with regards to what shaped me, I think I was very, um, very susceptible to, and I really swallowed a lot of the messages when I was growing up from uh, the media, from, um, from TV, from film, uh, and to an extent, 
those people around me, my parents, um, mm. around this necessity to be strong, always come across as strong, in charge, mm. powerful. Um, and I think that was a big driver, even though when I joined the police, if you'd have asked me why I'm joining, I would have probably given you that, that stock answer of, I want to make a difference. But if anyone had challenged that and dug much deeper, I'm not sure I knew really what that meant. I just mm -hmm. knew it was a, a good answer to say to people. And having done the work on myself that I've now done, I think the, the true answer is policing stood out to me as a way of living my adult life and coming across as strong, powerful, in charge. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I think with regards to the challenges that I've faced to get to this point, I think the biggest challenge has been to let go of what I fear other people might think of me. I think uh, as a younger man, I was very much governed by that. Um, and at no point did anyone ever really verbalize any expectations of me. Um, I'm really sorry, Ryan. <laughs> All good. I'm really sorry. Can, that, you, can you edit? It's fine. We'll roll with it. Ah, cool. Okay. I'll just check it out. The joys of podcasting during um, the times, right? But I tell my guests, make sure your phones are off and uh, everything's off. <laughs> like, I, I really would take full responsibility for not saying that at the start <laughs> then. <laughs> um, okay, so sorry, getting back to that. Yes, so um, I was very much influenced by um, what I thought people were going to think of me. Um, and nobody ever told me any of those expectations. No one ever explicitly said, we expect you to be perfect. But they, that was part of the story I told myself, mm. made up from all the little interpretations I took from, from the messages coming from all those places we get influenced by. Like I said, back, back when I was young, it was just TV, really. Um, but yeah, from your parents, from your friends, from, from your teachers, uh, all those messages. And I just translated it into the world needs me to show up as strong. Mm. And you were a, a former sergeant and, and responsible for others and leadership. And the thing I've really come to terms with with leadership is that it, it, it comes with a lot of sacrifice. And I just I just wonder what are some of the sacrifices that, that you've had to made make as, as, as part of your leadership and showing up within the police? Well, I think conversely, I sacrificed a lot of who I really was mm. in an effort to try and show up as who I thought I needed to be. Mm -hmm. um, and when I look back at, at those pivotal moments when, when, I was, when I was really called upon to be a good leader, I think, again, it's, it's easy with hindsight, isn't it? But I think mm -hmm. I sometimes will have hidden more of myself to try and come across as the leader that I thought was required. Mm -hmm. And actually, potentially, if I'd, if I'd learned to practice vulnerability appropriately earlier a little bit more authenticity would have mm -hmm. probably probably lent itself to a better result than actually what i achieved at the time mm. what changed <clears throat> good question so um uh, so uh, with, with regards to circumstances uh i um I began to struggle in the, uh, with regards to myself, um, with regards to how I was able to show up. I started uh, distancing myself 
um, isolating myself. I sort of withdrew from life a little bit. Um, I didn't know it at the time, um, but I subs subsequently know uh, it was PTSD. Mm -hmm. But that change came subtly. Um, it came over a, a period of time. Um, we weirdly, well, not weirdly, but my career didn't suffer. In, in fact, it, it, it continued in, in, in a sort of upward trajectory um, and, and things were looking pretty good there. But in my personal life, my, uh, my wife and I, our uh, relationship uh, became quite difficult, mm -hmm. um, largely because of that disconnection. Um, and we separated for a time uh, because it had grown so much. Mm -hmm. um, and all the time, I'm still trying to show up as strong. So I'm mm -hmm. putting on the mask. I'm playing that role that I think people need to see of me. So I'm not asking for help. I'm not talking about how I feel. Um, I'm just trying to show up as the, perf the perfect officer, the perfect person. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I ran out of places to hide and excuses to make. Uh, and I found myself uh, very unhappy, uh, despite the the facts of what was happening in my career, I still, it wasn't, it wasn't fulfilling me. Um, mm. I think I, I'd wanted to grow up and try and be James Bond. And I've, you know, I, I kind of thought, Oh, do you know what? I'm, I'm on my way, you know? And when you look at the, it almost sounds silly to say now, but got to drive a fast car, got to have a gun. It was, you know, I'm ticking those boxes and the more and more I got, closer and closer to trying to get to that um, mm. unachievable goal, the less fulfilled I, I felt. Mm. Uh, and uh, my wife and I took a holiday to discuss our, um, like how, how things were going to be, like what, what did the future hold? And, um, and she, uh, my, uh, Beth handed me Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. And I, uh, I opened it up first page there's the man in the arena speech by Theodore Roosevelt and I just sat there and it just spoke to me pretty much like nothing had spoken to me before and mm -hmm. it summarized how I felt my life was mm -hmm. that that you know wanting to step into the arena mm. but for me I didn't have the courage to because I was letting what other people's opinion of me might be govern how I showed up and actually, it wasn't really showing up. It was retreating. So that changed it all, really. That was, that was the catalyst. Sat down, had some very difficult conversations. Uh, it was the first point I think I was really willing to accept that uh, even the slightest bit of these circumstances might actually be down to me. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so a lot of talking, a lot of reflection. Um, I was in my 30s, and it was the first time I ever really sat down uh, and, and I uh, worked with a worked with a coach, uh, and looked at what my values were. Mm. Uh, subsequently, coming into this line of work, you know, a lot of my clients, one of the first places I will start with my clients is their values. Mm. And you ask someone those questions: What do you stand for? What are your core values? And I think most people are surprised at that question, and mm. very few people have a a quick, genuine answer. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we will panic and go to the, the ones that sound good, generosity, integrity, 
Um, but when we really look inside ourselves, I don't think that's something we as a population mm. do uh, very naturally or very easily. Um, mm. And we need to be provoked into doing that sometimes, I think. So when you went looking intentionally, what did you find? I found a much softer, happier person mm-hmm. away from the uniform. So it's, uh, it's a theme, I think, that, that goes through the emergency services, that when we put that uniform on, it's a source of immense pride. Um, it's a huge identity. It's a huge part of, of who we are. Uh, but it also comes loaded with expectation. Uh, the, the body armour comes with metaphorical armour as well. Um, you know, that need, and having spoken to a lot of colleagues since, it's that you go into work, you put the uniform on like your armour. At the end of the shift, you, you take the uniform off, but you're carrying everything else that you experienced that day back to your home life. Um, you, uh, we'll, we'll come back to your Brene Brown work uh, shortly, but let, let's just touch on the podcast that you've recently set up. And you're giving a voice to uh, current and former service people up and down the country. And you're giving them a voice. What are some of the things that are coming out and what are you learning about what it means to be on the front lines at the moment? I think there is a, a, a universal... Um, uh, a universal misconception by many of our colleagues, no matter what, no matter what role you are performing on the front line, that there is this expectation to appear strong. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm finding from the feedback we're getting from listeners that, and it was the it was the turning point for me, I guess, realizing I wasn't alone in what I was going through. Mm-hmm. I think again, that is a that is a general rule across the board so many people have written in saying do you know what i just needed to hear somebody else verbalize what i'm going through um so i'm learning that yeah it doesn't really matter what your job title it's that expectation of strength it's the i've also i've also been and i know this might sound a little bit controversial but i am becoming less and less comfortable with the increase in references to superheroes, mm-hmm. our heroes on the front line mm-hmm. doing a superhuman job. Of, of course they are. They're doing an amazing mm-hmm. job. But if you keep telling someone they're a superhero, mm-hmm. there will be some people, if not a lot of them, who feel they have to live into the image that you are verbalizing. Mm. Um, and, I, and whilst I think it's incredibly well meant, I don't think it's healthy and I don't think it's supported. I think it's actually um, uh, an accidental way of, of loading increased pressure mm. onto those on the front line. If you keep calling someone a hero, they'll, they'll eventually believe they have to be that hero and heroes don't show weakness. They don't ask for help. They don't tell you, do you know what? I just don't know the answer to that question. And they never say no. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is something I'm, um, right. The book you recommended to me, Curse of the Strong. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember the author. Um, but there's a part in it where he, he comments on how, um, those most susceptible to PTSD yeah. are generally the character that is attracted to emergency services. The people who will always be willing 
to take on an extra role who if something gets tough don't say do you know what no it's not for me mm-hmm. they will always say yes they will always step into the fray and he makes the point that actually it is healthy for you to be able to say no sometimes um so yeah so that's what i'm learning i'm learning that it's it, it, you know, it doesn't matter what color uniform it is mm. the the uh the main pressures are very much um across the board yeah talk to us a little about the podcast what's it called and, and what sort of content are you sharing on there uh so it's called behind blue lines and uh and it's uh, i i interview members from across the the emergency services and i mean uh and they are those who have suffered uh, the emotional uh, cost of trauma. That may be PTSD, it may be depression, it may be another form of mental health um, issue. Um, They are people who have, as a result of trauma, suffered disconnection in their personal lives. So I think it's really important to call out that whilst we've got hundreds of thousands of, of individuals out there on the front line, almost all of them have at least one person back home who, who doesn't wear the uniform, who might not work in the emergency services, who are the people who are welcoming them home every day. They're the people who have to live with them. They're the people who love them. Um, and as much as it's important to get the message across to those in uniform, you're not alone. You, you can ask for help. And that's where we want to get them to the point. I also want to make it very clear that they are not the only sufferers of trauma. Mm. Uh, To give you an example, one of my first interviews uh, was a a police officer who was involved in a uh, very high speed collision. Yes, he, he suffered immense trauma, as did his wife when she receives the phone call to say, he's in a bad way, you need to get to the hospital right now. Mm-hmm. that is a traumatic event mm. um, and, and I think sometimes it, it gets forgotten that I've literally mm. I've just come off an interview with, with uh, a paramedic and he put it really well it's like the brick being dropped into the pond mm. and the ripple effect when that when that traumatic incident happens it's not just those people in the immediate vicinity that get affected yeah, you're right. I, I um, in my time in the police, was trained to be a post-incident manager, a, a PIM. And if you were a firearms officer, you'll be all well aware of the whole PIM suites. And I was, um, I was fortunate. It's a funny word, but to spend time with the the firearms officer that um, shot and killed John Charles Domenes, and and to hear the impact on him, his welfare, his life, his family, as a result of you know, simply carrying out his duties, you know, the scrutiny that he was put through, it, it, it can't go unnoticed or just the amount of stress and pressure and burden that, you know, that police officers up and down the country carry just simply be, be by being asked to do their best with the job role that they, they've been given. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's a huge burden. I think personally, I probably didn't appreciate that. As a, as a young man eager to, to experience all those Hollywood moments I assumed the job would bring. Mm. And I don't think you often stop and think about it. Um, and, and I think you, you give a really good example there of, of an officer who I've never met him, but from what I understand of 
his life following that incident has has gone through tremendous turmoil in in mm. his in his career and personal life um but that's not really made clear to many people until it actually happens yeah and there's a whole backdrop story there of leadership which i won't even go into but um talk to me about you, you use the word courage what gave you the courage to leave the police force uh, I found the courage to leave the police force when I found the tools and got the understanding of what it is to practice vulnerability. So mm-hmm. linking it back to Brene's research, you know, vulnerability is our greatest measure of courage, not weakness. Mm-hmm. And, um, and funnily enough, it was, I, I worked on a, I've worked on a couple of units which were um, extremely uh, almost stereotypical, let's say uh, very, very male dominated, um, a need to overtly show up as a strong character. And the more, the, the deeper I got into that world, the more I felt I had to hide those, those bits of myself that might be portrayed as, as anything other than this alpha male I'm trying to come across as. And, and it was exhausting and it was difficult and it was confusing and it didn't, it didn't make me happy at all. Um, to the point where I, I never really felt like I, I fully fitted in. Um, once I learned actually what vulnerability is, um, you know, with, with boundaries and practiced appropriately, mm-hmm. once I worked out whose opinion counts, who I can trust, who I can speak to openly and vulnerably, and not have to try and hide all those things, the less about me I tried to keep in the dark, Conversely, the more confident I felt, the stronger I felt, the more audacious I felt. So the less I'm trying to hide, the more willing I'm let, willing to let that light come into me and show people who I really am, the less I feel like anyone can attack me, the less vulnerable I actually feel. Um, and certainly the more I'm able to influence and encourage those around me. Um, so certainly once I, once I um, understood what vulnerability was, that was the point when I certainly was the best leader I've been. Um, but also it was the point where I felt I had the courage to do what was in line with my values and mm. not what I thought others expected of me. Yeah. What, um, what led you to then becoming uh, accredited and qualified in, in Brene's research? I had initially written to, um, to her and her sister, so her sister's director of, of um, mm-hmm. her organisation. Um, and I'd initially written saying, look, your research is amazing. My wife has trained in it. I get it. Um, we need this in the UK. Um, and uh, that conversation developed and, and I found myself out in Houston with her team studying her, studying her research. Um, again, it, I, think, I think the reason why I went out there, the reason why I made that quite big decision was because it resonated with who I was, because I had a strong mm-hmm. understanding then of what are my values, um, what do I believe in? Well, actually, that is what I believe in. Mm-hmm. So, so this is the path I'm going to follow because this is, this is me. This mm-hmm. is not a path that I'm following because 
I worry about what somebody else's judgment might be. Um, and so it was authenticity, I think, is the answer, the short answer. I ended up studying Brene's research because it was the most authentic research and content for me to mm. uh, throw myself into. I love that. How do you now take all of those experiences, both, both life experiences, police experiences, your education, how do you bottle all that up in, in, and help people? So actually my background, um, I think, well, you, you'll know that the world of coaching is saturated with coaches. <laughs> um, and, uh, and when I try and uh, when I think, so what sets me apart? What do I bring that's different? I think back to my time in the police, um, I went through various, um, uh, you know, additional training, advanced training and interview techniques, that curiosity to really get to, you know, let's often let's cut, cut the crap, <laughs> or get through the lies that either you're, you're telling someone else or even yourself, um, and get down to what's really going on here. Mm. I think, um, I think it's a natural trait of a, of a police officer to get very curious, um, but also get curious in quite a direct way. So I have, um, I'm fortunate enough to have a, a you know, quite a wide client base, mm -hmm. but my, my clients will generally report that one of the reasons why they work with me is because of the personality I bring to my coaching. I, um, but because of my experience and because of the way I've had to be in the police, mm -hmm. I find it very easy to, to retain that position as a professional sounding board, never mm -hmm. to leap in and try and fix mm -hmm. or collude or offer an opinion to really hold people to account with their own, with, with what they're saying um, and be very direct in my approach. I know, you know, when you're, when you're looking for a coach, you need to find someone who is, who fits with you. Um, I think there is, uh, there is a sliding scale of support and accountability. And I certainly put myself much further down that, that sliding scale of, towards the accountability. Um, you know, and I'm not saying there's any point on that scale that's, that's better or worse. I think it just needs to fit with the person looking mm -hmm. for support and what they need. Um, but I've certainly found my niche is clients who need a very strong, direct, challenging perspective from their coach. Mm -hmm. what, what are some of your values that you bring to life? So my core values are enthusiasm and playfulness, mm -hmm. uh, consideration and family. So I know, I know they are my four core values. And this is the beauty of, of getting really in touch with your values. They're like mm -hmm. a blueprint. So now I have that confidence that I didn't have before, I can then align any, or any decision I have to make, any big decision, right? Where does it align with my values? Does it align mm -hmm. with my values? Because if it doesn't, there's a quick answer there. No, out the way, let's get on. And it's, uh, it's a quite an efficient way, particularly when you run your own business and you're trying to you know, bring your family up. And you know, mm -hmm. time is, is a commodity that is quite short often. And so, having a tight grasp on your values is a very good way of working out what you say yes to and what you say no to. Um, I've, um, 
that's really really powerful thank you for sharing that and i, and I think i've always tried to lead any team that i've been part of with a sense of fun and just hearing you say playfulness i just wonder how you incorporate that in your leadership hmm. that that's a very good question because i've never consciously tried to plan it or mm. or, or um you know consciously bring it into the way i show up so I know that there, is, there are times when I am working and I, I, I catch myself being playful, um, sometimes being cheeky. And it's those moments where I know I am really bringing my best self to that work. Um, uh, yeah, it's a really good question just because I've never planned. I don't plan how to bring my values in. That's who you are. Is who I am. So if if I'm not if I'm not living into my values, and that's quite easy to mm. understand once once you practice and once you get into it, mm. and you 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 understand that you know the, the the physical connection with your values, you know when you're out of alignment, it feels wrong in some way, mm. and you know you can either change it up or step out of that situation. But um, yeah. no, I, yeah, I, I I don't I don't form an intention to try and plan to bring my values into it. It, it, it's just big. Yeah. Yeah. I found that as well when I started showing up as the, as the leader of, of who I was, you know, things like even just having a five minute break to play noughts and crosses or asking my colleagues will laugh at this. My former colleagues will laugh because I'd ask questions to get to know them in a sense of if you were a biscuit, what type of biscuit would you be? You know, and, and that's the sense of fun in the leadership. It's in the micro moments, in the small moments where we're just going to have a lighthearted moment and we're going to get a deeper connection and relationship to each other. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and you, you've now that connection. That's what that's what I, that, I think. That's where the great work is done when you have a genuine, authentic connection with the person across from you. Yeah, absolutely. My ethos is about helping people be always better than yesterday. I'm just curious to know what that phrase means to you. It it brings up it, it brings up a lot of different thoughts for me actually and and different emotions so i am i am cautious of the word always mm-hmm. um and that is because i get pulled up quite often um for using that you always do this <laughs> this is always the case and that is my uh, and for me that is my perfectionist coming through the black and white world um nobody always does something no that's my perfectionist and that is me uh blaming when i'm using that sort of language i know i'm in a place of blaming rather than discussing so um but that's nothing to do with with anything other than my own personal baggage with the the word always um but i think i think constant striving that that's what it brings up for me always better than yesterday is, is constant striving it's interesting it'll be down for the individual person to to define what better is um and i quite like i quite like the way it's phrased because it is i don't know whether it's deliberately provocative but but what is better and i think it challenges that um probably the the old the old ideas of i've I've got to be more than yesterday Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that's a very well that could play out as an unhealthy belief. Whereas always better than yesterday is a positive intent 
and defined entirely by the person using it. Mm. So yeah, I, I like it. And for me, it's self-growth, self-improvement. Yeah. And those, those are the core tenets of it. Self-growth, always continually learning um, and, and being brave enough to show up and, and, and learn more about ourselves, others in the situation. I think, I think I do love what you say about it's whatever people, whatever baggage people bring, because sometimes people want to be practical. Well, how can I be always better than yesterday? And, and I think, you know, sometimes actually what I try and bring is a sense that if we're showing up and we're doing our best and we have days where we fail, well, we can still be better than we were yesterday because we've learned something because we've, you know, the critic in the arena has showed up. They, they've, they've, they've learned something about themselves, something about others, something about something that didn't work. So it's just this background mindset that just says there's always something today that I can take forward and do something with today. What haven't I asked you? Hmm. Question. I oh, see. This is my perfectionist coming. <laughs> There's my mind going. Oh, ask. Tell him. Tell him to ask you a really great question. Um, I think. <clears throat> what would I like to? T okay. So let me ask myself a different question. What would I like to tell you about myself? Because that's essentially what we're what we're trying to get to, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I, I would like to tell you a little bit more around uh, perfectionism, actually. Mm -hmm. So I would like, I, yeah, I'd like, I'd like you to be curious a little bit more around perfectionism and brave conversations, difficult mm -hmm. conversations. And the reason I'm, I'm keen to talk about that is because I've just thought to myself, well, what are the most common topics? What is the repetitive request mm -hmm. we get? And from our clients, it is work on perfectionism and it's work on how to have difficult conversations. Mm. It's interesting because I think when you talked about having that um, label of being a superhero for um, police officers, what I, what I went to in my mind was some of the language we can use as parents with our children, which always puts them on a pedestal, being a superstar. You know, my, my son's just been labeled star of the week this week. And, um, you know, and I think sometimes that can put them on a pedestal and, and create feelings within them around having to maintain and sustain, you know, the similar ways that you talked about the superhero. Where does your perfectionism come from? Oh, yeah. Well, childhood. But I, I, and I'm, I'm not qualified to say this, but my belief is that for a lot of us, perfectionism is, is, is born out in, in childhood. Um, that, that's where the seed is planted. Uh, we have, uh, over the last sort of 12 months, been producing a programme specifically for 16 to 18 year olds to help alleviate their, their struggles with perfectionism. And we've been speaking to teachers and there are teachers with kids as young as five who are saying we are noticing perfectionist tendency mm -hmm. in these young children. Um, you know, the amount, I, I think every school we've spoken to has given examples of they, they know their students are doing their homework. Mm -hmm. It's not perfect. So they will redo their homework and redo their homework and teachers pick up on it because they're saying I'm getting stuff and like, there's never anything to, Mark, 
I can't give direction because this has clearly been done five times until it's perfect. Um, I think perfectionism is one of the biggest threats to our, our young people's self-worth, their mental health. Um, sorry, did you ask me what perfectionism is to me? Mm. I can't remember the yeah. question. No, yeah, that's all good. This is good. So, <clears throat> it's, it is one of the most... Uh, it's one of the most difficult topics. It's one of my um, favorite topics um, because I think to a greater or lesser extent, we are, we are all affected by our perfectionism. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something that I don't think you'll ever get rid of, mm -hmm. but I think you can prepare for it. It's very much like the, you know, the, the gremlin, your inner critic, like you mm -hmm. never get rid of your inner critic, that, yeah. that you know, undermining self-talk, but you can prepare for it so you don't get driven by it. Um, and I think that's that's the same for perfectionism. It's a, it's a response to shame. If you go back to Danae's research, that's what it is. When we go to a place of shame, when we don't feel like we in ourselves are good enough, then one of the behaviours that we would exhibit is, um, is perfectionism. Some people that I've spoken to will will describe perfectionism like a double-edged sword like there's an element of it that's positive and it helps them be who they are and show up and reach the standards is it a double-edged sword or is it just a sword <laughs> so ironically i want to give you a really decisive black and white answer which <laughs> the perfectionist's favorite place to go um i don't think it's a double-edged sword at all i don't think there's any um i don't think there's any or, or i don't get any benefit from trying to find the positives in perfectionism because from the usual benefits I hear cited about perfectionism. Mm -hmm. Well, they're all available to people who practice healthy striving. Yeah. Mm -hmm. People who practice healthy striving have more available to them. Mm -hmm. So perfectionism is not, uh, sorry, if you let go of perfectionism, yeah, that's, uh, that's not letting go of high standards. Perfectionists set themselves unattainable, targets mm -hmm. and the perverse thing about perfectionism is when you fail to hit that target which you will you tell yourself i'll try harder next time i'll do better next time and you never give yourself a break and you never reach the targets mm. set for yourself the only difference between healthy striving and perfectionism comes down to who are you doing this for mm. if you know your values if you're doing it for you mm. then you're practicing healthy striving if yeah. you're doing it because you worry about what other people will think of you. Mm. That's perfectionism. Yeah. Perfectionism. On, sorry, Karen. Sorry, sorry, go on. Let's say you, you touched on, um, I can't remember what it was now, but the, the sense of perfectionism, oh, failure. And, and, and actually there are, there are two ways I think that, that failure can manifest itself in terms of its attribution so the, the biases in our attribution some will internalize that and, and blame themselves and and others will externalize that and blame others for, for for the failure and i just want to link that to what you want to talk about in terms of brave conversations and how can we keep people accountable um, when they're busy blaming themselves or busy blaming others mm. so i think it's it's important to call out now that blame it has nothing to do with accountability so so we blame or blame is simply a discharge of discomfort and pain. Mm. No, no link to accountability whatsoever. Um, and so with regards to having difficult conversations, that key to 
how do you maintain accountability? How do you challenge? How do you set healthy boundaries and hold people to account in, in a way that actually builds a relationship rather than breaks it? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that for me is the key. Um, and I think that's, uh, it's, it's one of the most important tools I think a, a leader can have. Mm. you know setting healthy boundaries but actually not just a leader so we do it, you know, it's perfectionism and, and difficult conversations or brave conversations are our two most requested workshops and they're not always simply for leaders they're, they're for every level of the um, organization because it's about empowering people to say no sometimes to set mm. boundaries to say what is okay and what isn't okay with regards to behavior mm. or workload um, that doesn't just have to fall on the shoulders of leaders. I think you can empower everyone to have those skills. But it's very, very, you know, a lot of people find it very difficult because, again, it comes back to vulnerability because to hold someone accountable, you have to be vulnerable. It's about sharing how something makes you feel. Mm-hmm. And people, we don't, people don't like that. You know, the greatest mm-hmm. myth of vulnerability is its weakness. We, you know, we're taught from an early age, put the armor on, build the wall, don't show weakness. Um, but, that, but that is ultimately the key. It's about owning, owning the stories we're making up about a situation. It's about being open about the way that the stories we make up make us feel. Mm. And then it's about asking for what we need. And the more explicit we are in the way we ask for what we need, the easier it is for the other person to give us what we need. Um, and I think too often we, we know what we want. We don't know how to verbalize it. Then when the other person doesn't give it to us, we go into blame. Mm. They should have done this. Why aren't they doing that? Mm. Did you ask for it in the first place? Um, and do you know how to ask for it? So, yeah, I think the value of, of difficult being able to have a difficult conversation is, is huge within an organization. Mm. I love that. And I think um, I'm trying to remember this rightly. The foreword to Daring Greatly, Brene thanks her husband, Steve, for making her a better person. And I really loved that, that feedback that she'd given her husband. And that, and that says a lot about a relationship, doesn't it? And how, because it can be quite difficult to, um, you'll, you'll probably know this as a, as a coach, when there's an, a sense of emotion involved in a relationship, um, how, how can people have more meaningful conversations not just with those that they lead but maybe those within their own home where the emotion can become uh, a blinder to having some of these vulnerable conversations Hmm. so i think a key there is trust Mm. Um, i think uh, when you're when when you're dealing with something um, like emotions uh, and this also links back to vulnerability and vulnerability mustn't be oversharing it's vulnerability with boundaries. So when you're having these difficult conversations, when you're practicing this vulnerability, it must be boundaried. So there must be trust in the relationship. Um, But I, I can't, I can't think of a single difficult relationship, uh, sorry, a difficult conversation (laughs) that starts with, certainty at the end Mm -hmm. so it's about um having the own your own 
It's about knowing why that conversation is meaningful to you. Why is mm. it worth having that conversation? I know, you know, we, we can sometimes use emotion maybe as a, a fear or as an excuse not to have that um, mm -hmm. conversation. Like how often do you not have a conversation because you think, well, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to offend. You know, there's, there's a whole list of fears and excuses we use not to have these conversations. Um, a lack of certainty often makes us feel out of control as well. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people don't like feeling out of control. So that's another blocker. And so I think even in those um, sort of highly charged relationships where there is a lot of emotion when you're very close to someone, um, they still need to be had. They still might come across as very difficult and very raw. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, if, it's, if, you, if you can't share your feelings, mm -hmm. practice vulnerability safety, with the person you're choosing to be with, then perhaps there's some other questions to to ask around yeah. how you go forward. On a um, on a Facebook group uh, community that I'm part of, someone asked a group of leaders, "How can you uh, practice and demonstrate vulnerability more, um, or something to that effect?" And and, and my response was, um, "Go first and." honor it when you see it in others what would you add to that list if there's a listener right now that is wanting to demonstrate more courage and vulnerability where where would they start i would start by identifying who in your life whose opinion counts mm. because this is not about wildly running out there and just opening up to everybody and claiming you're suddenly being vulnerable work out in your life whose opinion counts who's earned the right to hear your truth. That's where I would start. Start reaching out um, to my own, you know, for me, when I was in the police, everybody's opinion affected <laughs> what I did. So I, you know, it stopped me from doing anything sometimes because of my constant consideration of what one, two, three, a hundred people might think of me. Mm -hmm. So um, as a starting point for me, it was when I realized whose opinion really counts in my life. And I understood why those people make it on that list. Who are those? Who are they? Who, do, who really knows me in a way that when I'm acting up, when I'm acting out of accordance with my values, mm -hmm. they've also got the, they're the sort of people that can turn around and, and, and call me out on it, who can hold me to account when I'm not living into my values. You work out who those people are, that is where I would suggest you start practicing vulnerability. Mm, great advice i love that how can people connect with you and find more of your content so the bravestpath.com uh, is for our consultancy uh, and uh, behindbluelines.co.uk is our uh, podcast um, we're on instagram we're on twitter we're uh, all over the social media um, I would, uh, if anyone's got any questions, the easiest way to get in touch with me is just to write to me at gareth at thebravestpath.com. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, for your stories. Um, please leave us with a final thought from your good self. I've always said that if I was allowed back to my old school, um, I would want to give a speech that probably people don't want you to give 
to to young people or, or sometimes anyone but the crux of that speech would end in find out what is meaningful well find out get in touch with your values understand what they are and take massive risks i know it's not something that a lot of people will say go and take massive risks as long as they're aligned with your values mm. be brave be audacious and I'll often say to people, what would you do if you were 10% braver? That's a, that's a question I will leave people with. But yeah, my final thought is if, if I could make a real difference, it would be to encourage people to take more risks, smart risks in line with their values, but risks. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Great. Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. What a fantastic conversation. Really enjoyed that. And I think the thing that stood out for me most was this sense of what would you do if you were 10% braver? I'm not going to say anything more other than let that resonate with you and write down your answer. Write down your answer and tell somebody and then go and live as if you were 10% braver. Please do subscribe and share this interview with the one person you know in your network that would benefit from hearing what Gareth has said today. Thank you for listening this far. I appreciate you. Much love.